Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Producer and engineer Glenn Johns worked with the Beatles on Abbey Road, had an all-night session with the Rolling Stones for Let It Bleed, and recorded Jimi Hendrix at the Royal Albert Hall. And that was all in just two days. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We talk to soundman Glenn Johns about working with some of Rock's greats, and we review the seventh album from Coldplay. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, Greg, and later in the show we're going to review the seventh and perhaps final album from Coldplay. The Coldplay memory that sticks with me is they did a small club show at Metro in Chicago behind the third album when they're filling arenas, and there was this woman at this table next to us kept leaning over from time (laughs) to time. I had to point out to you that it was Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Chris Martin's wife at the time. Yeah, I wasn't up on my Hollywood actresses at the time, then or now, Jim. We're going to talk about Coldplay later on in the show, though, and uh, first we've got some music news. That is the iconic track, Ace of Spades, from Motorhead, sung by one Ian Lemmy Kilmister. Jim, the man needs no introduction in certain no, rock and roll circles. as good as rock gets. You know, Ozzy, Iggy, Lemmy, I mean, just one name, it, it says it all, doesn't it? He's, he, he was a larger-than-life personality. The lead singer, founder, bassist in Motorhead, one of the uh, great metal bands of all time, now dead at the age of 70 on December 28th, four days after his 70th birthday. He died with his boots on. I mean, this band was touring to the very end. In fact, their 22nd album came out uh, just only a few months ago and was their highest charting album ever Mm -hmm. in the United States. Still very much a presence until his last days. You know, he left home in the UK in in the 60s to become a roadie for Jimi Hendrix, and the rock and roll lifestyle (laughs) was born. Uh, It was in another great band uh, before Motorhead, uh, Hawkwind, uh, Space Rock Innovators. He was on their classic album, Space Ritual. He was the lead vocalist on their biggest UK single, Silver Machine. Wrote that song. Great track, yeah. And then I got kicked out because apparently he wasn't doing the same drugs as the other guys in the band. And it sounds tongue-in-cheek what I'm saying, but this was, in fact, uh, one of the main reasons the band let Lemmy go. Well, it wasn't about psychedelia. (laughs) It was about speed. Exactly. And Lemmy was into speed, no doubt about it. And uh, he proved that with Motorhead. Uh, Named after the last song he wrote for Hawkwind, he would always go on stage and say, we are Motorhead and we play rock and roll. (laughs) Big stack of Marshall amplifiers, those mutton chips 
shop sideburns, the leather biker gear. Yeah. You were going to get the heaviness, but you're also going to get the speed. And they got put down a lot in the 70s because they weren't like other metal bands. They certainly weren't like progressive rock. They didn't really fit in. But Lemmy always told me that the punks understood us first, and they became a template for what metal became in the 80s. When you think about Slayer or Metallica or Anthrax, that speed metal, that thrash metal sound was really born with Motorhead. 22 albums, also what I loved about Lemmy, the sense of humor. Killed by death, right? You know, what a song title. (laughs) I mean, he always had this kind of leer, but also a wink involved, too. He, He took his music very seriously, but there was a sense of humor about it that I think was always appreciated by their fan base. And an underrated intellectual, Greg. Yes. He was a student of military history, and he could speak at great length, citing footnotes for references. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to play one of those songs that was about World War II. It's called Bomber. It's from one of two albums that Motorhead put out in 1979, inspired by a novel written by Len Dayton about the German Henkel HE-111 bomber. It's a classic Motorhead in terms of volume and speed, but also, you know, these fascinating lyrics. So, here is Bomber by Motorhead on Sound Opinions. Bomber from Motorhead and Lemmy Kilmister. Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and tell us what you think about Lemmy in tribute to his death at the age of 70. listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's Children of the Future, the title song from the 1968 debut album by the Steve Miller Band. It was also the producing debut by our guest this week, Glenn Johns. Since coming of age during the birth of rock and roll in Epsom, England, Johns went on to produce and engineer some major albums by the Rolling Stones, The Clash, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Eric Clapton, The Eagles, Led Zeppelin, later on with artists like Ryan Adams and Band of Horses. 
You know, not only was he part of some beautiful songs and arrangements, but he also got a first-hand look at some of the most intriguing personalities in the rock world at work. Glenn Johns recalls his life spent uh, behind the recording console in a new memoir called Sound Man, and we're happy to talk with him in London. Glenn, let's start with a real basic question. You identify both as a recording engineer and as a producer. What's the difference? Uh, Well, an engineer is responsible for getting the sound on a recording session, and he does that under the direction of a producer. A producer is a bit like what a director is to a movie, really. It's a technical role, I suppose. And the producer's role is to supervise the entire thing, the performances, the choice of material, the arrangements, and if he's using an engineer to supervise the sound that the engineer is getting. Um, Some producers I worked with when I was engineering couldn't whistle a tune, uh, but they had a great sense of feel. They also were able to create a really conducive atmosphere for the artist to work in. Mm -hmm. You can go right to the other end of the scale where they take over completely and the artist is just an implement for them to manipulate Mm -hmm. (laughs) to their own ends. Sit in the corner until uh, we need you, yeah. Well, well, exactly. Stand up and sing, now shut up. Uh, uh, But uh, I certainly fall into the former of that. I've been really fortunate to work with some extraordinarily talented people. Soundman, uh, your book, is very frank. You're very frank about, about these years in the studio, and I think people who are listening to the interview are going to have their minds blown just by, if we get to a quarter of the list of some of the folks you've worked with, Glenn, was that a concern when you sat down to write the book, if I'm telling stories out of school? Or, you know, does what happened in the studio have to stay in the studio? Very much so. I, I've I've always felt very strongly about that, and and that there are there are no kiss and tell stories in the book, and nor no. should there be. I mean, my role my role as an engineer, the, the 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 recording techniques have changed quite substantially in the last few years, as we all know. And I was trained in the late fifties and early sixties to basically capture what was going on, not to sort of reinvent the wheel, and. If you're working with really talented people, that's all my role, I've ever seen my role as being, is to try and represent what they're giving me in the best light possible. And that invariably is not messing with it at all. really at the center of what later became called the British Invasion in those early days. Some really big bands like the Kinks. Yeah. And you were there when they recorded All Day and All of the Night in 1964, Mm -hmm. basically inventing this sound with that overdriven guitar. And maybe, Glenn, you can clear up a rumor about those recording sessions, because there's a lot of rumors flying around ever since that your friend Jimmy Page played guitar on some of those sessions. Mm -hmm. What was the reality of the Kinks back in those days? Oh, that's a classic example of what I was just talking about. The sound that they got on uh, on the, those sessions was very much coming from them. Uh, I just managed to capture what they were doing as one answer. And the other one is, yes, Jimmy did play on some of the uh, kink sessions, but to be perfectly honest with you, 
I cannot remember which. Mm -hmm. It's all a bit of a blur. <laughs> so, there we are. Did you sense that they were inventing something as you were watching them do it? I mean, a lot of people ascribe the, the whole overdriven guitar sound. You know, it's kind of this accident that turned into the central driving force in, in, in some of these songs. What was your I mean, sense a combination of it? Of, it's a com it, well, first of all, I'd never heard anything like it when, I, when they played it, and it parted my hair. And a lot <laughs> of it was not just the sound, but the song itself was quite unique the same with uh, with uh, my generation oh yeah that, that again was like a, a complete head turn i'd never heard anything quite like that before we won't try to put us to just because we get around There's a lot of things about my generation that were pretty radical, uh, you know, Entwistle and Moon. Kind of the rhythm section was kind of out front. Well, I mean, the fact that the fact that Roger Daltrey stutters in the vocals—who's <laughs> ever heard of that? And basically, you're there to just get it down. Were you offering opinions at this point, or were you, was it simply a case of, hey, I just better not screw this up? I'm, <laughs> it's very difficult to keep me quiet, so I, mm. it's possible I was offering opinions. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'd, have, I'd have had my, my say, but Shell Talmy was the producer of those sessions right. and uh, was very much involved with the production, obviously. It sounded, though, like Townsend had a very, very strong idea of what he wanted, and it wasn't a case like Shell Talmy or anybody else was going to tell him differently. I mean, did he have the arrangement and, and the ideas for how the song was going to sound? Uh, you know? No, you're, you're, you've, you've hit it in one. Uh, absolutely. And I, when I eventually produced The Who, uh, which was some years later, um, I found the same thing. You, you know, you don't interfere with something that's working really well in the first place. Hmm. You just shut up and let it happen, you know, and facilitate it. And Shell certainly was very good at doing that. But we're back to what we were talking about earlier on about what a producer does. There are certain instances and certain artists that require far more from you in different areas than others. The biggest sort of difficulty in the job is to spot exactly where you can be useful and, and not interfere and not destroy something that, <laughs> that's really good to begin with. Right, uh, and to, to to facilitate and make sure that the artist is really comfortable in the delivery of it. That's the that's the key, really. You you're you're a, you become a bouncing board, if you like. It's to do with confidence or all kinds of things. And different artists have different egos or com levels of confidence. And lots of people n just need the reassurance of somebody saying yes, that's that was fantastic, or maybe you could do it better. I've heard you do it better. Whatever it is, you know. And they'll if if they trust you, which is why you're sitting there, I suppose. That's where you become useful. I'm sort of renowned for having absolutely no patience because I use it all up in the studio. <laughs> you, yeah. Don't wow. be stuck next to Glenn in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We'll be fighting in the streets with our children at our feet. In the morrows to be worship, we'll be gone. And the men who spurred us on, sitting judgment. Yeah.
you had mentioned, uh, you know, working with The Who for my generation, and then you come back with them, you know, a few years later, and, and, and Townsend is producing Won't Get Fooled Again. I interviewed Pete once where he said you played a very important role in the way that record came out sounding because because of the other band members, well, the, the dynamics within, <laughs> well, I, obviously, but I, in terms of the yeah. dynamics within the band, the way Keith Moon, John Entwistle performed on those songs, they weren't happy... He said that they weren't happy with uh, with some of the stuff that was going on there because their role was perhaps less... They had to play in a more subdued yeah. fashion in order for that song to, to work. Uh, yes, I, I must say, it saddens me. It's, I had no idea that they weren't happy at the time, I have to tell you. And any suggestion that I ever make to anybody I'm working with, whether it be a session musician or the artist or whoever, it's always done hopefully with their approval I mean if they don't approve of it they're not going to play it very well and if they don't understand it they're not going to play it very well so you might as well not bother with it neither John nor Keith ever complained to me about what I was suggesting the reason for me doing what I did was that the the material didn't require what they would normally do and didn't translate for what they would normally do in my eyes anyway Mm -hmm. and so I made a request that they that John played with a more regular bass sound, for example, a, bit, a bass sound with a bit more weight in it. Equally with, with Keith, I tried to describe playing him playing less in a less complicated way than he perhaps normally would on some of the material, not all of it, mm-hmm. but some of it. And they went along with it, and it wasn't until the record had been released that I that I actually found out that they weren't happy about it, which is very sad. I mean, I'd never have, and had no intention of, of uh, over. I didn't overrule anybody. I just made a suggestion, and they went along with it. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to work anyway. I mean, the, the net result, whether they were happy or not at the end of the day, is, is by the by now. Uh, and the record did, did okay for them. So a couple, <laughs> okay. a couple of people have heard and loved that record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. We'll hear more candid memories from soundman Glenn Johns after a quick break here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Coldplay collaborates with Beyonce and President Obama. Stay tuned. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
that's not true Wanted a woman never bargained for you Lots of people talking, few of them know Soul of a woman was created below Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Dazed and Confused from the debut album by Led Zeppelin, which was released in 1969. It was produced by the band's guitarist, Jimmy Page, and engineered by our guest this week, Glenn Johns. And Glenn recounts working with Zeppelin and other big acts like the Rolling Stones, Neil Young, Fairport Convention, The Who, The Eagles. They're all in a new book called Sound Man. Now, Glenn, you and Paige had known each other for years, really. I mean, since you were teenagers. And together you created this almost live album. And it seemed from the outside that it was pretty painless recording it. It was incredibly quick. No, and I think we did it in nine, di- nine days. Yeah. Was it because the band was so well prepared, so well rehearsed? What was the key were, to doing that? No, exactly what you just said. They were they were incredibly well rehearsed. One of those records that was very controversial too. You mentioned in the book that you tried to play it for Mick Jagger and George Harrison, and, and they <laughs> yeah. didn't they didn't get it right. No, I'm sure they still don't. <laughs> Why would they? Why would they change their mind? Well, George isn't with us anymore. We'll never know. But. Um, no, it's it is weird. I, I've often I've often thought since uh, the book came out because people have mentioned that to me about it being in the book. And in fact, maybe if I hadn't have recorded the first Led Zeppelin album, maybe it wouldn't have affected me the same way if I'd have heard it on the air or something. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it sure as hell blew me away recording it. I can tell you. Page had played on sessions, and obviously he'd been in the Yardbirds, but I don't think anybody had heard anything like Bonham. But Jimmy's Jimmy's whole style of playing on on the first Led Zeppelin. I mean, I know I'd known Jimmy for years and, and worked with him a hell of a lot, as I had John Paul Jones, um, and I had no idea. I had still had no idea what I was going to walk into on the first session. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody just sort of rose to the occasion, and it was pretty extraordinary. You were working on all these records simultaneously. You were in L.A., flew to London, this is February 69, uh, went straight into the recording studio with the Beatles to work on Abbey Road, followed by an all-night session with the Stones on Let It Bleed, after which you rejoined the Beatles and then went to Albert Hall, Royal Albert Hall, to record Jimi Hendrix. And that was all in the span of some one-day, one, one-and-a-half-day period. Is that true? S- something, yes, of course it's true. You think I'm calling me a liar? The Jimi Hendrix thing, I was standing in for somebody who couldn't make it, I think. I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know. I can't remember how I got that gig. But I never I never really liked Jimi Hendrix very much, I must be honest. I mean, it, I, I don't mean to be rude, but it, it, I, I, let's put it this way. I don't own a Jimi Hendrix record. Mm. Um, anyway, yes, it was a very busy time. And <laughs> it was quite normal. To, yeah, Quite normal. <laughs> I was used to it. 
Uh, Glenn, you worked with the Beatles in 1969, recording what were originally called the Get Back Sessions. Much of that stuff would come out eventually as the album Let It Be. What might people be surprised about with the Fab Four? I think we have this tendency to mythologize this band in particular, but yeah. they were musicians. Yeah. They were just human beings yeah, who made exactly. music. They, were just they regular, made they were, jokes. It, they got mad yeah, at each yeah, other. Exactly. And, and, and Everybody goes on about the problems within the band at that moment, and eventually it wasn't terribly long after that they did break up. Don't leave me waiting here Lead me to your door Many times I've been alone Many times I've cried Ultimately, these sessions became Let It Be. That's it. Phil Spector redoing it? Well, he re- he just mixed it. He didn't do yeah, anything yeah. else. And he added a load of choir and orchestra and other rubbish. It is a lot it. of rubbish. <laughs> oh, God. We finally Syrupy got to hear bullshit. some of the original stuff. And, yeah. No, no. Complete and utter nonsense. Awful. Awful. I say in the book he puked all over it. That's <laughs> exactly what he did. And such a delicate situation for a producer to be walking into with uh, George Martin having been so associated with the Beatles for so long and not working on those sessions. And I know that you met with George uh, somewhere along the way there. What was that meeting like with George? It was perfect. He was absolutely charming. In fact, I had been retained by uh, Paul McCartney as an engineer. I wasn't retained to produce anything. I was retained to record what became uh, Let It Be. And uh, I had no idea that George wasn't going to be there. Uh, wasn't mm-hmm. going to be part of the sessions. After a few days, George took me out to lunch and was. At, he said, "You're not talking," because I was very embarrassed because I didn't know what was going on. And he said, "You know, he made me feel completely at ease about the whole thing. Um, well, it couldn't have been more gentlemanly." Hmm. We're talking with engineer and producer Glenn Johns about his book Sound Man here on Sound Opinions. Now, Glenn, uh, you were really embedded in that UK rock scene, and it was a pretty small world. It's understandable how you worked with so many people in the same circles. But then you became just as involved in the California scene, half a world away, in the late 60s, early 70s, working with Steve Miller and the Eagles. What was that shift like coming over here? It was a dream for anybody of my age to go to America, because all we'd ever seen was westerns <laughs> or, or 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 you know mo- the movies that came out of america and it was it was it was fascinating and of course we equally we were all our noses were being led from a very early age by what we were getting from america musically i mean all everything that came out of the uk in in the early 60s was based on what what we'd all been listening to from america the california end of things really 
got me. I, I, I loved, obviously, when well, everybody likes a bit of sunshine, you know, particularly in those mm. days in England. And I suppose I was a bit of a novelty to the Americans. Mm. And, and my reputation had preceded me with the Stones records I'd made, really. That's really what got me, that opened the door, I think, because I'd been making all their records for several years. And to be honest with you, the, the, my involvement with the Eagles was, was perfectly, seemed perfectly natural to me. I mean, I, it was a harmony band. I was into harmony, big time. Um, I really appreciated particularly Brandy Ledden's mu- musicianship. Mm. Um, it was very easy to identify with what they were doing once I understood exactly what they were capable of. So I just slotted straight in. It was, it was great. Come on, baby. One thing that I thought was fascinating about the Eagles is that I think in some ways you helped them identify what they were best at. Uh, at least I get that sense, that they wanted to be a rock band, but you said, no, no, this acoustic stuff and this harmony stuff is, yeah, is really Yeah, that didn't last. Strength. I mean, the reason, the reason I got fired was, <laughs> was because they still wanted to be a rock band. And uh, I wasn't having that because I don't think they'd know rock and roll if they fell over it, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but listen, good luck to them. Joe Walsh. Uh, sure knows how, knows about rock and roll, but the rest of them wouldn't have a clue. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, good luck to them. It's it's very interesting how when they stopped working with me, they went on to far greater things. I mean, they had their own way, and they clearly did the right thing by leaving me. I'd have held them back, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing that strikes me about reading these chapters with all of these big personalities in them, you're in the studio with all of these people, as Jim said, fly on the wall in a way, uh, but also, obviously, at the mixing board, was that you didn't seem to take a lot of guff from people. And you seemed to be able to insert a truth, an uncomfortable truth, whenever it needed to be told in the studio. And it wasn't always received well. There is, obviously, the Phil Spector model, which is my way or the highway. But then there's a lot of other producers, I think, who work in the uh, idea that they're basically there to follow orders and they're essentially yes-men. And you seem to... Uh, strike a balance between those two positions. Was that a conscious thing or just a, 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 a oh, function I guess of it's just who I am. It's, uh, yeah. the, the, I don't want to sit there and just do whatever I'm asked. I can't really see they can get an engineer and be satisfied. No, there's, there's little, little or no point in that. Whenever I'm asked to work with anybody, there has to be a mutual respect whereby they have confidence in your opinion just as much as you have confidence in what they require and you can understand what they require. And there's a balance of the two. Otherwise, you might as well, not, you might as well stay at home and mow the lawn. Right. <laughs> Thank you. 
Let's talk about the Stones. What's Do we really have to? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, your your name. There isn't a lot to say, by the way. I know yeah. your name's on those records, yeah. and and people wonder. Uh, not your favorite band to have recorded. Oh, oh, oh! That's a bit over the top. Is that how it comes across in the book? Okay. Uh, there were some absolutely extra. Uh, listen, oh, I don't know where to begin here. That that my experience with the Stones was phenomenal. Looking back on it. It's just like if if you're involved with something for a very long time, you tend to remember the best bits, you know, in reflection, and uh, that's what that's the way I choose uh, my involvement with the Rolling Stones. I learnt an immense amount working with them. Mm. It wasn't all a barrel of laughs, but a lot of it was fantastic to witness going on and to be part of. I did leave in the end because it was I just got bored really, and they were taking far too long to do everything and. Mm. I wanted to get on, you know. Well, there also seems to, to, uh, to do more. Spending too much time with the Stones seems to have been unhealthy. I mean, I think we've interviewed the great author Stanley Booth, you know, in True Adventures of the Rolling Stones, and you know, the yeah. first sentence in the book is, "I was lucky to get out alive." <laughs> well, it's interesting. One of the one of the questions earlier on that you would, you asked me was something something about how I, how I related to the to the artists that I work with and, and what, one of the things certainly in the from the middle sixties through to the sort of middle seventies I was probably the only person who was straight yeah. in the room <laughs> and and I know that sounds like I'm being amusing but it, it's actually true the majority of the people that I work with were under the influence of substances various and. In my view, you can't do what I do and and be anything other than totally together. So one of the groups, another of the groups you wrote about in Soundman was The Clash, and you really seemed to have a lot of affection for them, uh, working on combat mm. rock. Mm. What was Joe Strummer like? Strummer was one of the most charming people I've ever met, a complete delight, incredibly bright, and very, very talented. An absolute joy to work with, a, a professional to the core. Uh, I really really enjoyed working with him and we became really good pals and, and uh, he is a huge loss uh, I think it's it's just awful that he he departed when he did because he had so much more to offer I think the prison was a standing on the radio worked on, on Combat Rock with Strummer, very much involved. Mick Jones was not. It's interesting that they brought this uh, kind of unwieldy double album to you, uh, the way they, it was described uh, in the book. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't their idea. It was, it was um, the head of a and at CBS, their record label. And Joe was very much up for that. And Mick didn't really like the idea, which I don't blame him for at all. It ended up with just Joe and I working on it together. How about the faces? 
You know, Ian McLaughlin, Ronnie Wood, Rod Stewart, Kenny Jones, and Ronnie Lane. Okay, Ronnie Lane was in a band called The Small Faces, which never made much of a dent in the United States of America. Uh, one of the reasons being they never actually went there, which was ridiculous. They were an extraordinary band, and I made their very first record, and we all became really good pals, and I, I made pretty much every record they made. I They eventually split up, and The Faces was formed with Ronnie Wood on guitar and Rod Stewart singing, and Kenny Jones and Ian McLagan and Ronnie Lane were the original guys from The Small Faces. That was another eye-opener, really. Mm. <laughs> they were... They were as I say in the book, they were the, it was rock and roll with a twinkle in its eye, really. They were great fun, very, very talented. It was very rough rock and roll, but fantastic. Really great to work with. Ronnie was a great songwriter and became a very close friend uh, until he died, sadly. Mm. Uh, and I, I have a huge admiration for him. I'm a huge fan of the record you did with Pete Townsend and Ronnie Lane, the Rough Mix record. Yeah, it might be my favorite album I ever did, I think. Both Pete and Ronnie are very close friends and have been since I was very young. And the combination of the two of them is they're quite, it's quite an unlikely marriage, really, personality and music-wise. Somehow or other, it made, a, made for a magic record, I think, with, e with them both contributing equally to each other's material and still retaining their own individual personality. There's a great collection of musicians on the record, mm -hmm. and it's it's one that got away. It, it never really had the, the commercial success that it should have done. You also tell an interesting anecdote where you kind of did a 180 in your opinion of, of Eric Clapton based on his work on that record. <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, okay. Um, Pete had written an instrumental f um, for this record, and he said that he'd wanted Eric to come and play it. And I, my previous experience of Eric hadn't always been that wonderful in as much as Eric, Eric was not always the most amenable person to be around <laughs> because of the condition he was in at the time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to have anything to do with it, really. He was a bit unreliable, and and uh, I'd never paid much attention to him, really. I had made a record with Howling Wolf with him playing guitar and where he was on his best behaviour, I must say, and um, that that had gone really well. But uh, other ex other brushes with him... I hadn't really thought very highly of him, so I said to Pete, "Well, I don't want him in the studio. I don't want, I don't want him anywhere near me or, or this record." And anyway, Pete said, "Well, I'm not asking. I'm telling you that I've, I've written this for Eric to play, and he's going to come and play it." So I swallowed it and went, <laughs> "Okay, fine." So Eric came in and played 
the instrumental and was perfectly charming and turned up on time and all of the above and hung around for the rest of that day and for the following came back the following day and the following day after that and he played uh, Doberon he overdubbed a Doberon one song we did and he, he just played just extraordinarily uh, it, it opened my eyes to what an amazing talent he was which I'd never really paid much attention to before By the end of the week, he came to me and said, would, you, would I make his next record? And I went, absolutely, yeah, OK. And we made Slowhand. A couple of weeks, three weeks later or something like that, we started Slowhand. We're now making an album again after 40 years. Oh, wow. As a result of the book, funnily enough. Mm-hmm. Because he read the book. In the book, I, in the book I made mention that I, did, you know, I missed him as a pal because I hadn't seen him for so long. Mm-hmm. And he called, and called me up and he said, uh, well, I am still your pal. And uh, <laughs> we, made, we, made, we made contact again and now we're working together again, which is great. Well, who's on the list, uh, Glenn, at the end of the day, of uh, the ones you wish you could have recorded? Is there anybody still? I always wanted to make a studio album with Bob Dylan. I've recorded him live yeah, on re- a couple of occasions. Real Live, 84. I did an album called one, Real right? Live, and then yeah. I, also did, I also recorded him at the Isle of Wight in 1969 with the band backing mm. him. But, I, you know, they were live things. I didn't. I was never in a studio with him and I'd, I'd really love to have made a, re- a studio record with him. Other than that, I don't think there is anybody left now, really. You mentioned Dylan, working with Dylan, who was a, what a character. I can only imagine your encounters with him. But you drop a, an anecdote that I'd never heard before, which was that Dylan had asked you about possibly working with the Beatles and the Stones. Pretty strange idea. When he suggested it, I thought I, it was a pretty weird idea. But I, I naturally, I thought, well, this could be uh, either really amazing or absolutely load of nonsense. And, of course, the only way one would have found out is if it had happened. And there was no way it was going to. So, I mean, I asked everybody and, and the answer was, the, the overall answer was no. So it was it was an, quite an extraordinary idea. I mean, and, and only he could have come up with it. I think. <laughs> Do you think he was being serious? Oh yes, absolutely, hmm. absolutely. And and McCartney and and Jagger, who were uh, who were who were Dylan fans, I guess they were the ones who turned it down. They did they even? I have no idea it? if they were Dylan fans or not. I I, I I never got that far. Well, I think they Ke- were. Keith was Keith, Keith Keith was definitely a Dylan fan, mm-hmm. uh, and, and would have been up for it. And George was definitely a a Dylan fan and would have been up for it and of course eventually they formed Travelling Wilburys and, yeah. and Dylan and George got to work together anyway so mm-hmm. 
But it's kind of like if Dylan asks you, it's like it's like refusing a request from the Pope, sort of, right? <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> Producer and engineer Glenn Johns is the author of Sound Man. Glenn, thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. And we want to hear from you. What are your favorite Glenn Johns recordings? How important are producers and engineers to you as a music fan? Has bad production ever ruined one of your favorite bands? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. Coming up... Coldplay failed to top Adele in the charts, but how's the music on its seventh album? We'll tell you in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is a song called Birds, one of the first two singles from the seventh album by Coldplay, A Head Full of Dreams. Greg, it seems odd that Coldplay has now been around for seven albums, going on 16 years. They emerged in 2000 with a single called Yellow and quickly became, based on that song and Clocks and In My Place, a string of hits, one of the biggest arena, then stadium, then massive festival headline draws of the new century. Very few bands in the last 15 years have become as big as quickly as Coldplay. A basic, chiming sound, many nods to you too, but Chris Martin, a very smart, a very earnest fellow, you and I have both interviewed him, did try to stretch the parameters of that sound. I think the mid-period of Coldplay, X and Y, and Vida La Vida, or Death and All His Friends, when they began working with, get ready for it, Brian Eno, a lot of experimentation, and they're nodding toward Krautrock and Noi, where are they now? Ghost Stories in 2014, the last album, was widely seen as Chris Martin's down-in-the-dumps breakup album. He divorced from his wife, Gwyneth Paltrow. Where are they going now? Martin has hinted that this will be Coldplay's last album, but he's in a very upbeat mood. In fact, 
Coldplay's gone pop. If you read all the advanced press, the producers here on this record include the Norwegian team Stargate, which has worked with Rihanna, Katy Perry, and my favorite, Ilvis's What Does the Fox Say? I love that song, right? That's not the only odd collaboration. You have a spoken word rendition of a poem by the 13th century Persian poet Rumi, and you have President Obama sampled singing Amazing Grace. Wow. How does this album all add up? Let's play a song. We'll come back and give our opinions. This is the title track, A Head Full of Dreams, by Coldplay on Sound Opinions. title track from Coldplay's latest album, A Head Full of Dreams. Jim, this band has been called Milk Toast and the rock and roll equivalent of Milk and Cookies for a long time, and I always thought those criticisms were a little off base, and I mean that sincerely. I, I do think there was a period of this band where they were doing some interesting things, making mainstream rock a little bit more flavorful with some of the textures that they would incorporate, whether it was Middle Eastern elements or a little bit of craft work here and there. There was always exotic touches that made you think, oh, they're not just playing by the rule book here. On this record, they are playing by the rule book. I mean, they're in bed with these big-time pop producers, Stargate, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but they really don't do much with the formula. People have talked about this being their most pop album, their most danceable album, and they are sort of flirting with disco and club beats on a handful of these songs. But what bugs me about it is they really don't go all the way. It's like they don't have the conviction behind it to really take it as far as it should go. I mean, even the collaboration with Beyonce is sort of underplayed. There's not a real (laughs) big sense of, wow, here we are collaborating with the biggest pop superstar on the planet. How do you have Bay in the room and manage to undersell it? 
know. It's, it's just very strange, and I think that is very much in keeping with the whole Chris Martin persona. You never get the sense, even when he was breaking up with Gwyneth, there was never this sense of just anger and bitterness any of that. It was sort of a vague melancholy with the emphasis on the word vague. Yeah. You really didn't know, is this guy really broken up about this or not? This is a guy who lives his life behind a sheet of gauze. That's and, what it seems like to me. And it's a rock critic cliche to to quote lyrics, but there are so many howlers on this record. Oh, oh you that give I, me one. I, I got one, too. I got I mean, one as well. Everglow, the, the, the song he wrote about his former wife, Like a Lion You Ran, a goddess you rolled like an eagle you circled in perfect purple. Oh, no, I mean, I, I you know, I got, I got one. I got, how can people suffer, Greg? How can people part? How can people struggle, Greg? How can people break your heart? You know, Jim, I finally understood why there are so many wordless choruses on this record because uh, this yeah. guy just can't uh, write lyrics to don't save let him his talk. life. Chris yeah. Martin should be banned from writing lyrics, and they're going to be playing the Super Bowl, so have fun with that. But meanwhile, hey. this is a, a, a trash it record for me. I got to agree, Greg. It's a trash it record. I go back to Viva La Vida and X and Y, and I saw great promise in this band. And look, there's no way you can't like yellow clocks in my place. There are no singles that strong. There's no new direction. He's kind of wandering aimlessly, you know, bringing in Obama, bringing in Rumi, bringing in Beyonce. It ain't going to save you. It's time, Chris, to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. A double trash it from Sound Opinions. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Jim, next week we have a, an interview and a live performance from one of the fine new artists of 2015, Shamir. Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Sylvia's mother says Sylvia's busy. Too busy to come to the phone. New messages. Hey guys, it's Eric up in the Hudson River Valley of New York. Uh, listen to your 10th anniversary show. Love it. Of course, love you guys anyway. But you got to give up the Nick Cave thing. We are both huge Nick Cave fans. Yeah. We have given many positive reviews to Nick. Man, everything, though, went wrong with this one. I just don't hear it. You sound like you disagree. I don't know what the, what the problem is. Well, it's not really for us to stand in judgment of that man. Mm -hmm. us, lesser, yeah. us lesser mortals. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not I'm not actually talking about myself here. Right, 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 right. You're talking about yourself, Mick? No, you know, I, I mean, think he's talking about you. Oh, oh, oh I see. Well, I know, but we're critics. Maybe you had to be there in person, body language. Maybe he stole your candy. I don't know. It, I don't hear it. So, um, anyway, uh, if that's the worst interview you've ever had, then you've had a great run. Thanks, guys. I keep up the great work. Bye. I'm so far away from you Pacing up and down my room Jesus only love a man Turn on the radio There's some cat and a saxophone Laying down a litany of excuses My name is Mary Calhoun. I'm calling from Martinsville, Virginia. I am so glad to hear that there is interest in 
uh, having cassettes and cassette recording available. I'm a community chorus singer, and it's a wonderful tool for learning your music. And I was just about to sort of be hopeless about being able to lay my hands on what I needed for this next uh, chorus season. And now I've heard this, and I'm glad to hear that maybe it's coming back. Thank you. Bye-bye. I wish there was a social excuse to make you a cassette tape. I teach you all about my life from side B to side A. Fast forward, rewind. Whenever, whenever Hey, this is Adam Wolski in Nashville, Tennessee. Come on about the revival of aesthetics. I just bought a 1996 Ford Ranger to help with doing some carpentry work. It has a cassette deck in it. And so there was no other way for me to listen to music on it, no aux cord, no way to plug in my MP3, my Spotify. And so I went to our local record store, and they have a huge cassette collection, which I was very surprised about. And so I picked out a Jackson Brown and a Bruce Springsteen and popped them in my cassette player in my new Ford Ranger that barely runs. And it's been the most nostalgic, beautiful thing that I've experienced going to work early in the morning, drinking my sun kiss. on the station that it wasn't nostalgic because we're not old enough. I'm 23. But for some reason, it feels very nostalgic because when I was, you know, 9, 10, 14, I was still using cassettes to make mixtapes and to record songs that my parents wouldn't let me listen to and, and steal them from my friends. And so popping a cassette into my truck and listening to any of these old bands that originally made their music on cassettes is very nostalgic and a great way to go to work. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.